0: Hello, welcome to the podcast on Consciousness with Bernard Bars and friends, open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We are here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Bernie is the originator of global workspace theory, or GWT, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. Our special guest today is Robert Kozma, professor and director of the Center for Large-Scale Integrated Optimization and Networks, CLEON at the FedEx Institute of Technology, and professor of mathematics in the Department of Mathematical Sciences at the University of Memphis. Robert is editor-in-chief of IEEE Transactions on Systems, Man, and Cybernetics, and past president of INNS, the International Neural Networks Society. Our student interviewer, Ilian Daskalov, is a cognitive science student at UC Irvine. In this episode, we will focus on our just published paper in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, Consciousness Research, titled, Global Workspace Theory, GWT and Prefrontal Cortex, Recent Developments, by Bernard Bars, Robert Kozma, and myself. Hi, Bernie, hi, Robert, hi, Ilian. welcome. Hi. Hi, Nat. Hi, guys. Hi, Nat. Nice to be here. Yay, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. So, before I hand the talking stick to y'all, I thought I'd introduce the gist of the paper briefly for our listeners, okay? In this work, we provide a brief overview of global workspace theory, GWT, along with recent developments and clarifications of modern neuroscientific evidence. GWT started in the 1980s as a purely psychological theory of conscious cognition and has become a prominent approach in scientific studies of consciousness. Based on today's far more detailed understanding of the brain, GWT has adapted to new waves of evidence. The brain-based version of GWT is called Global Workspace Dynamics, or GWD, precisely because the cortex is viewed as a unified oscillatory machine. GWT therefore joins other theories in viewing consciousness as the product of highly integrated and widespread corticothalamic CT activity following a long trail of evidence. In this paper, we aim to clarify some empirical questions that have been raised and review evidence that the prefrontal and posterior regions support dynamic global workspace functions in agreement with several other authors. Static gross anatomical divisions are superseded by the dynamical connectome of cortex. That brings us to the wonderful moment where I get to pass the mic over to Ilian. Hi, Ilian.
1: Hi, Natalie. Thank you for that lovely and detailed intro. And with that being said, let's begin. So as Natalie already said, we're going to discuss uh, your, Bernie, Robert and Natalie's paper uh, which was just published and it's titled Global Workspace Theory, GWT and the Prefrontal Cortex Recent Developments. And as we go through this paper, we're going to discuss each section. And without further ado, let's begin with the introduction. So. This paper that we're discussing today aims to clarify some empirical questions that have been raised and reviews evidence that the prefrontal and the posterior regions support dynamic global workspace functions, in agreement with several other authors. Now, in their recent paper, Raka et al. claimed that the prefrontal cortex is not causally involved in enabling consciousness based on their review of experiments. Bernie, why do you disagree with recall at all on this?
2: I suppose I disagree because the evidence uh, is uh, contrary to what they claim. And evidence is always the the touchstone in science. Doesn't matter what your theory says, uh, what really matters is what the facts are.
1: <clears throat> in that case, what is the argument about? The brain evidence is now compelling that the prefrontal cortex indeed participates in visual conscious stream, for example. And a lot of excellent evidence has emerged over the years, but
2: what are we arguing about here? It's a very good question. Uh, I think we're arguing about uh, the claim that the prefrontal cortex is a kind of a separate department. Uh, separate from the posterior parts, the, the rearward parts of the cortex. Prefrontal cortex is actually the front of the frontal third of cortex. So if you can imagine holding your hand next to your forehead and being about, uh, hold your thumb about uh, two and a half inches, three inches from your forefinger, uh, that's about the uh territory of the frontal lobe. And then prefrontal cortex is actually a subsection of the prefrontal lobe. uh, And it is in the front compartment of the prefrontal lobe. The frontal cortex is amazingly important. And the prefrontal cortex is even more important. I see. Well, that makes sense to me, at least that's
1: what I've studied in school. Well, let's uh, let's get into the actual meat of the paper. So this was just the introduction part. Now let's go to the next uh, section, which is titled Global Workspace Theory in the Cortex. And it's the subsection we're currently going to discuss is uh, subtitled Global Workspace Theory, a Theory of Human Cognitive Architecture, the Cortex and Consciousness, a brief overview. And Bernie, since I know this is your area of expertise, I'll direct this question to you. Can you tell me, what does global workspace theory predict about consciousness?
2: Well, uh, the global workspace theory that was initially developed in the 1980s, based on earlier theoretical work that's called cognitive architectures, global workspace theory did a number of things, but the primary empirical prediction was to predict a broadcast for conscious events in the brain so that the notion was that conscious events would appear in the brain as what more recent scientists have called an ignition and that was kind of a radical prediction because other people had not believed that the, the general belief at that time was that attention is selective and so therefore attention restricts the input and picks only what you have enough capacity to process. In fact, it turns out, of course, that the brain is much, much, much more capacious and functional than we ever imagined in the early 1980s. And we have learned that with the growth of the web, because computer science uh, has walked hand in hand with cognitive science and psychology, for decades. So we keep on learning things from each other. And the notion of a broadcast uh, really is uh, easy to understand in the context of a city metaphor, which is a little bit different from prior metaphors. Metaphors are very useful for learning and teaching and for discussing things. So Imagine a radio station or TV station in a city that is able to broadcast selectively from different parts of the city to tell the rest of the city about what is happening in some particular neighborhood. That is a workable uh, metaphor, and of course, in the brain, we're talking about huge groups of neurons that do this work, but we can think about it using the city metaphor I like the city metaphor,
1: it, it it gives me much more clarity about the theory itself. Now, as, as I was reading through the paper, I noticed that you wrote that global workspace theory eventually, as new evidence emerged, changed to global workspace dynamics. But I wasn't really clear on what the differences between the two are. Can you talk about the differences between global workspace theory and
2: global yeah, workspace? Sure. The initial uh, stage of global workspace theory was essentially psychological. And at that time, I just used uh, flow diagrams, which most of you will know about, to describe what I thought was happening. And then, of course, a tremendous amount of verbal description, bringing in the psychological evidence, which even at that time was enormous, because we know so much about consciousness we were just not allowed to talk about it as consciousness uh, in the 1980s. Uh, so now we can talk about it as conscious, and a particularly sensory perception is, is a beautiful testbed for exploring consciousness, and it's, it turns out to be the one that we use most of the time for scientific studies. But there are many other aspects of consciousness, of course, including visual imagery, for example, and people in the audience may want to bring up some visual images if they're not driving a car, because driving a car means using your visual consciousness for other purposes. You don't want to do that at the same time. Nevertheless, when you have time, you might want to consider some visual images. And I see that
1: Robert has a, something to say about it too.
3: Yeah, okay, so I don't want to interfere with this biologic, but I saw that uh, there is something I could inject at this uh, early stage when uh, Bernie and uh, and Ilian, you discussed about the role of metaphors and how metaphors are so important. And uh, I think it's it's very important. And uh, in science, we work with metaphors and uh, and I think it's very useful to understand. There is one thing uh, I uh, want to point out, that is the computer brain metaphor. And... Uh, And this is very useful as well. And uh, one of my heroes, uh, John von Neumann, uh, uh, wrote a book uh, on his deathbed about this. And uh, so I think it's uh, it's very important. But of course, as any metaphor, we need to understand that it has its limitations and it's not perfect. So with the metaphor, maybe two problems can happen. The one is somebody takes the metaphor literally, unfortunately, then uh, thinks that the computers are... brains and uh, that leads to all this uh, AI destroys the world and so on problem that on the other end uh, it's that completely deny that metaphor exists and then uh, then you get the situation that okay basically the brains don't allow legal scientific uh, study and uh, and in particular consciousness so we need to have a a balance between them and I, I wanted to point this out because very recently, actually, I, I met some, uh, some papers which uh, denied the role of metaphors in the brain studies and so on. And uh, I think it is almost equally as bad as take them literally. So that was my two cents.
0: That's a good two cents. And I have one question about that. I'll add another penny. What is the rationale for the denial
3: The rationale for the denial would be that any metaphor it is incorrect, which is true. So of course the brain is not a city, right? So I mean, how can you say that brain is a city? Are you crazy? Or or the other thing you could say, how can you say the brain explodes? The brain doesn't explode, but okay, and so on and so forth. So if somebody takes it very literally, the metaphor. Then it says that it's incorrect, and that is a true statement. But in science, every I must say, <laughs> everything is incorrect. I mean, that is science. You. Put down the, the, your theory, and within that theory, you build up, and so on and so forth. But once you go beyond the limits of theory, it is incorrect. But that argument is false because, okay, Bernie probably can tell it much better, also the philosophical aspect. But I think uh, that would deny a rigorous uh, scientific uh, treatment of that object, whatever we talk about.
2: Yeah, uh, the only thing I would add is that metaphors. For thousands of years, of course, people have known that metaphors are very useful for learning and for teaching and for communication. And they've also known that metaphors are, you know, hand-waving. They're sort of approximations uh, so that uh, a metaphor is not an equivalence between what you call it. If you say that the ocean is a metaphor for infinity well it is it's actually quite a, quite a wonderful metaphor for infinity and it's not a mathematically rigorous metaphor for infinity of course nevertheless the conception of the ocean and the sky and the universe and so on as metaphors for infinity uh, those are very stimulating metaphors and it's very important to realize that it's very much like uh, writing poetry for example If you ask a person writing poetry, do you really mean this metaphor? Of course, they'll say, no, I don't mean this metaphor. But what they're doing is they're tuning their metaphors to fit whatever the thought is that they're trying to convey. And that's what we do in science also. We use metaphors as tools, as thinking tools. And we keep on tuning them and we throw away the ones that don't work and try to pick up some new ones that might be better and so on. Uh, And in this particular case, uh, I like the city metaphor right now, because it uh, reflects the complexity of the brain. As you say, the brain, or the cortex in particular, is like a city, well, it has all kinds of neighborhoods, but then what you're really interested in is the traffic flow between the neighborhoods. And that's what we mean by dynamics in contemporary brain science. Dynamics has to do with the flow of information between different parts of the brain. And this is in belated answer to Ilian's question.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to say that as a student of science, metaphors have always helped me grasp a subject a little better. And obviously, as you both pointed out, metaphors should not be taken literally, ever, nor they should be denied, because they give us such a clear way of thinking about a specific uh, subject. And indeed, Bernie, I did want to ask you, since we're talking about dynamical regions in the brain, how do they differ from anatomical regions? I know about, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the insula, the hippocampus, those are all anatomical regions. But what do we mean when we talk about dynamic regions in the brain?
2: It's a very interesting question. Uh, and there is not a really simple answer, but the city metaphor will help us, I believe. What happens in a city when you have an earthquake, uh, which happened in San Francisco maybe 20 years ago, a nice big earthquake, it wasn't nice for the people who fell down the, uh, the bridge. One of the big long bridges uh, called the Bay Bridge in San Francisco actually had a concrete section, that's a big, big section of the freeway that fell down into the San Francisco Bay. Great disaster for the poor people who fell, of course, and for all the cars that had to hit on the brakes and and screech to a halt and be diverted, uh, assuming they survived in good shape. So it was a, a great disaster locally. And one of the interesting things about it is that this tremendous earthquake damage Did not interrupt the flow of traffic, even automobile traffic, between the two parts of the Bay Area, which are the city of San Francisco and what is called the peninsula, the San Francisco peninsula. It did not interrupt the flow of traffic because the traffic was diverted through a different bridge, essentially. Radio was not interrupted. Television was not interrupted. Computer communication was not interrupted because those are all fail-safe systems. And if one of the cables was damaged, for example, uh, as the part of the Bay Bridge fell, uh, the concrete, big concrete slab fell, then they would have found a different way to route the same uh, electronic traffic. So this is an aspect of dynamism. And neurologists who treat people with brain damage have realized for two centuries, I think at least, that when there is local damage in the cortex, it is very often undetectable in terms of functional impairments that the patient shows. And the most famous examples of this are the split-brain surgeries, which are actually done by surgeons deliberately in order to stop the flow of epileptic seizures Uh, electrical storms from one side of the brain to the other side of the brain. Surgeons feel, even today, uh, confident enough that the brain will recover if there is selective damage to this bridge that exists between the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum or the, the callus, the hard body, the body that if you're a surgeon, you can dip your finger down between the two hemispheres and you can tell there's a part of the of the brain tissue that you're touching that is harder than the rest and so that's called callus for whatever reasons people decided five centuries ago and it's a body because it's a structure and you can actually feel it uh, and touch it and see it anatomically with the naked eye anatomical gross anatomy like that is fundamentally important in understanding the brain and then of course like a city uh, looking at the city as if it's an object at a distance is very very useful but then you need to see the actual traffic in single automobiles going back and forth, uh, single messages, uh, telephone messages and cell phone messages and this and the other thing huge amount of information traffic going back and forth in the city and just like the, uh, the disaster the earthquake disaster with the Bay Bridge when a huge concrete slab of the, of the roadway uh, fell down into the San Francisco Bay, uh, maybe a 1,000 feet below, uh, even when that happened, the traffic flow continued, in some cases continued without interruption, and in other cases, of course, there was some interruption, then it was fixed. And both of those systems, both the city and the brain, have locations... And the locations are really, really important. And they also have dynamics. And the dynamics are beautifully functional. And that means that there's not an arbitrary uh, flow of signals back and forth between point A and point B somewhere in the city. What there is is a functional flow of information so that the particular part of the brain that's knocked out, let's say, very often can be compensated for by another uh, part of the brain that overlaps in function. It may have similar functions, or it may have related functions. Ah, uh, and, that, and that so explains this fabulous flexibility. Go ahead, uh, Ilian, uh, please. I was just
1: going to say that explains uh, why after uh, all the fallings from trees I had as a kid on my head, I still seem to function rather normal. <laughs>
2: Yeah it's it's amazing well your your brain is is carefully evolved and designed to survive uh- small strikes by peaches and pears and apples and things.
1: Ah, uh, well, thank God for biology, I guess. That, that was a fun You thing. <laughs> So, uh, let's just uh, move on to the next session, if we may. In, in there, uh, specifically, we're talking about the global workspace family of theories, and that is evidence-driven. Gentlemen, can we discuss what are the unifying principles of the global workspace family?
2: Well, uh, we've just sort of invented the family. Uh, I I have to tell you, this is a confession. Don't tell anybody else, please. Uh, The family is something that has emerged uh, very much. uh, I'm very happy about it. Uh, And basically what happened is that way back in the 1980s, I started to talk about this based on prior work. Alan Newell, who was one of the great pioneers in computer science and AI, And Newell himself learned his craft, of course, from even earlier work uh, in what was called the cognitive architecture tradition. So I'm sort of the the son of the son of the son of uh, Alan Newell and prior people, very, very good people in psychology and uh, computer science. And what I learned was to use the term and the concept of global workspace, which was the, the term goes back to Newell. Global workspace is a way of looking at what is called the stream of consciousness, which is a very narrow stream, as compared to the enormous parallel storage, memory, unconscious functions, all these things that happen at the same time. This stream of consciousness is serial, the vast unconscious part of the brain functions in parallel Uh, whenever it can. Uh, And that's a realization that goes back to the 1980s. And what Newell recognized very beautifully is that you can imagine the narrow stream of consciousness as a result of loads of little agents in the enormous unconscious domain uh, of the brain, arguing together, playing together, competing and cooperating against, uh, competing against each other and cooperating with each other in order to enable the serial stream. So when you have a thought or a visual image comes to mind, or you say something to yourself in inner speech, which is a really important uh, modality of consciousness, when you do that, it is quite possible that this is actually kind of a conspiracy by all kinds of unconscious little robots. Uh, I shouldn't say robots because the brain is emphatically not a robot, but they're little uh, agents, little agents that are creating your uh, conscious experience at any given moment. uh, And that occurs on a rate of about 10 hertz, 10 cycles per second. So let's say about 10 squeaks that go from the little agents in the audience to playing their part on stage.
1: All right, uh, well, this one will be directed at Robert. So can you tell me what are the unifying principles of the global workspace family, please?
3: Okay, so my answer is no, (laughs) (laughs) I cannot tell you all the unifying principles, but I can volunteer tell some of those just a few bullet points uh, some mental marks and then I just uh, drop the ball to Bernie so I think the ignition is a very important thing it relates to the thought that something is continual but not necessarily continuous so there are some periodicity and that could be the about the 10 hertz so it's roughly speaking it's a it's a quasi-periodic, so that is experimentally observable. That's an that's, uh, important part of the family. The, so that's uh, this ignition and discrete, so the unity of discreteness and continuity. Then uh, the other related concept is the unity of the localization most of the time and then uh, Uh, Bernie mentioned, the agents and so on, it's more localized, but when it gets to the consciousness, then it's it's very rapidly, uh, a large-scale synchrony evolves, and that is also measurable and relates to the broadcast and different interpretation. So that's the local and the large-scale, and there is maybe the intermittent uh, large-scale synchrony. And uh, of course, so uh, when we talk about the theta, that's more like off, uh, sorry, not theta, that 10 hertz, so around 10 hertz, so discussed. So that is alpha, but theta, we now call it the theta alpha. And then uh, that is the kind of pe- underlying periodicity. But we know that the content is carried in the gamma, beta gamma, so that's the higher. So there is a. Uh, if you just properly continue with these frequencies, the magic number, uh, I think five or six plus minus two comes up, the ratio of these cycles, and so on and so forth. So that is my initial my <laughs> thought of this.
2: Yeah, let me go back to Ilian's question, please, because Robert just described it. Let me put it back in terms of Ilian's question. What are the unifying principles of the GW family? I think the, the major take-home lesson is quite simple. We think, we tended, historically in psychology, uh, we tended to think about consciousness as a squeezing of the bandwidth of information. Because of selective attention, that means selecting uh, uh, just one stream of information out of a hundred different streams that you could select at any given time. And that is true in its own way, of course, but the claim here is that when you select one stream out of a hundred, that what happens inside of the cortex particularly is that you get an ignition so that the information from that particular conscious stream spreads as soon as it becomes conscious. And that has now been beautifully verified by a great deal of quite remarkable brain science. So I think the unifying principle, I suppose, the first unifying principle of the global workspace family is that idea that there is a kind of a broadcast of conscious conscious contents, as soon as they become conscious in the visual cortex, for example, we observe that ignition or broadcast, those are essentially identical terms as far as we are concerned.
1: Let's go to the next section of the paper titled Global Workspace Theory and the Coricothalamic System. So as I was reading through a paper, it Became clear that the cortex and the thalamus both play, it seems like they both play a very essential role in consciousness. Now, Robert, would you tell me what role did the prefrontal and the posterior regions of the cortex play in dynamical workspace functions?
3: Let's start in a broader context. So, in the case of thalamocortical interaction, I think that's very important. The way I see and that really based on my decades long uh, collaboration with Walter Freeman and from Berkeley and neuroscientists on a lot of uh, experimental evidence is that the cortical sheet is really a unified oscillatory organ. So the thalamus is projecting from deeper brain areas and then there is a cortical thalamic loop which is important here. So I think that's one I I wanted to to mention now as far as the prefrontal and posterior uh, so the different sensory areas. I would say just following this ignition idea and then uh, broadcast. So the ignition uh, probably could happen in any of the could be a visual post or other sensory areas, whatever are important, and then then they very rapidly propagate to ultimately cover the whole brain, and then the prefrontal, and then the conscious. Uh, when it's needed, the decision is made, and then uh, once it's made, then this large-scale synchrony collapses, and this whole cycle starts again. Uh, including the thalamocortical loop. So that's, that is in a broad lines. So I don't know if I answered at least partly your question.
1: I think that was very clear and segues us very well into our next question, which I want to direct to Bernie. Since you mentioned a couple of times binding and broadcasting in the brain, can we talk about what exactly is binding and broadcasting?
2: Yeah. uh, At this moment, uh, the consciousness of our listeners combines all kinds of information into a single conscious percept. We can call it a percept. That's a useful word from perception. Or we can call it a conscious gestalt, uh, which is even a better word uh, from the gestalt movement in psychology that emerged around 1900 and uh, taught us so much about vision, for example. A gestalt is, is a whole. It, it's a conscious whole. And the audience right now, if the audience is listening to a single word, for example, they will be binding all the different sources of information to come up with that word as a single entity. For young children who don't have language yet, the sound of the word word is not a single entity. It is, who knows exactly what it is. It's probably a a fuzzy, cloudy thing. But I'm guessing, of course, because we don't know what babies are thinking. But that's a, a reasonable guess. For all the people we've been able to study, of course, that is routine. We start to learn something and we're typically quite confused at the beginning of the learning process because we don't know what goes with what. And then after a while, we figure out, yes, A goes with C, and B goes with D, and so on. Uh, And so suddenly, the gestalt, the unity, the whole uh, percept emerges in consciousness, very, very important fundamental idea. And we have sadly neglected the Gestalt tradition, but we should not. We need to go back to it and start thinking that way. So, what we have is binding so that uh, different syllables from a multisyllabic word, for example, are glued together in the cortex. The melody of my voice is also helps to shape. The glue that holds the syllables together. There are individual phonemes that can be teased out of the acoustical signal. Those are also part of this gestalt emergence that we, when we hear the words multisyllabic, for example, and so on. And most of us, uh, I certainly, uh, I think, I tend to visualize the spelling of a word, because I'm a reader, right? So I tend to visualize things in terms of written words, and that's also part of the Gestalt. And what I have started to realize, uh, as many, many poets have realized for thousands of years, is that even a single Gestalt, even a single conscious event, has multiple uh, levels and dimensions, so that there, there's a little bit of a, of a body feel to, If you imagine playing tennis, for example, there might be a lot of vision, there might be some body feels, there might be some muscle commands that are, go out at the same time as you're kind of inwardly playing tennis. And the same thing happens with other conscious events. I see. Let's
1: move on to our next section of the paper. That section will be titled Global Workspace Theory and the Cortico-Thalamic System. I have a specific question that we got into earlier just briefly, but now we're going to go into more detail. Can you tell me, uh, what did Raqqa et al., in their paper written this year, 2021, what did they get wrong about global workspace theory?
2: Oh, everything. Uh, Now, the interesting thing uh, about them is that they apparently looked at the brain as if all the neighborhoods are separate from each other. And that's indeed how the brain looks, because you can see the frontal cortex and part of that, the frontal part of that is the prefrontal cortex. And before that, you get parietal cortex and then occipital cortex, ba-da-ba-da-ba-da, all that stuff, right? So they look different to the naked eye, and that's gross anatomy in medical school. That's what it's called, gross anatomy because you can see it with the naked eye. Well, uh, of course, uh, we know that the real action of the brain takes place at a nano level, a really tiny microscopic level in cells and connections between cells. And those are typically very, very small. And so the information flow in the brain is dynamic and it's functional in pretty much the way that I described before. Uh, functional meaning that it's not just that the information is being tossed around in the brain in some kind of random fashion, but that it's a, a kind of a purposeful dynamic system, right? Because the brain is biological. Biology is about all about survival and reproductive fitness. And in order to obtain reproductive fitness, you have to find your mate and have children. And that's at least what the biology tells us, although we might have different opinions ourselves. Everything about biology has to do with function. And we want to be careful to describe function not in terms of conscious goals, because biology doesn't evolve consciously. But single animals are certainly conscious about their goals at any given time. And that drives their activities, their bodily activities, their conscious perceptions, their bodily feelings, uh, all those things. So we can apply the notion of a goal at the level of single animals. So what did Raqqa et al. get wrong about GWT? Well, uh, I think they uh, misinterpreted the neighborhoods of the brain as functional units. And that is true on a very broad way. So you can say that one part of the city is the financial district, for example. And, and another part of the city is the train yard. And another part of the city is the, the urban areas where uh, where people go home to live at the end of the day. Uh, and those are all functionally somewhat different areas. But the fact is that real functions are carried out on the smaller level by individuals driving their cars or truck drivers driving their trucks and so on. And so that's the functional level where the brain works as opposed to its mere physical existence. That's, that, I think, is their, their major error, that they separated parts of the city that look separate because the prefrontal cortex, you can easily pull out the prefrontal cortex if you have a dead brain. If you have a living brain, it is not a good idea to do that because the prefrontal cortex is in constant interaction, functional interaction with the rest of the brain. And that I think is the point that we derived ultimately from wonderful evidence that neuroscientists had gathered about the role of conscious vision, for example, which is in part controlled by prefrontal cortex. And that is the wonderful empirical discovery that has come out. And we made use of that, of course, to make our point. Wonderful, Bernie. Thank you so much for that answer. Robert, I
1: want to hear from you as well on the same question. What do you think Brock et all got wrong about global workspace theory?
3: Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I think Bernie said it very well, but I, I have some um, additional uh, perspective uh, so in, in their experiments, they kind of stimulated different brain areas. And then when they uh, stimulate the prefrontal cortex, they claim there is no detectable change of consciousness. So it is not impacted. But I think this is just that uh, they got absolutely wrong. The fact that by poking into or shocking the frontal cortex doesn't produce something what they would consider as conscious. fact it it doesn't mean it is not impacted it just means that okay probably you didn't shook enough i mean i don't tell them to shook more but in fact i wouldn't shook at all but but the point is that uh, the fact that they did something and it didn't produce an effect it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist so that's, that is my uh, my maybe what i wanted to add here
2: yeah robert already knows obviously that the prefrontal cortex is enormous, it's unbelievably complicated. There are many, many local areas, there are many, many long connections that run from one part of the brain to another part of the brain. So it's a huge city center in its own way. And so if you stimulate just one person living in the center of the city with an electrode, a tiny, tiny electrode that puts in a little bit of juice In one particular cell, let's say, or maybe a small group of cells, you cannot really claim that you have disproven some hypothesis about uh, what other little groups of people might be doing in that particular part of the brain. There is actually very beautiful evidence from other neuroscientific teams who have discovered that the prefrontal cortex is necessary for conscious vision, even though conscious vision is directly served by the back of the brain, the uh, occipital cortex, which is mostly visual processing. Vision is really, really important for human beings, of course, because we're primates and we have uh, binocular vision. We have very good color vision and so on. We're very much dependent uh, on our conscious vision. And so it's really important to realize that the what is conscious at any given moment, even in vision, which uh, relies on the back of the brain, is that the prefrontal cortex is still wired to uh, conscious vision. That is kind of, it seemed like a a superficial contradiction, but it turns out to be true. And there's direct evidence to that effect so that the, uh, the claim that selective stimulation in the prefrontal cortex in small numbers of cells or patches of cells, that that does not involve consciousness, is in fact contradicted by some of the research that was cited by Raka et al. So the the evidence is just very much against that claim that prefrontal cortex is doing nothing for visual consciousness.
1: Well, that was a very extensive and in-depth answer. Thank you, Bernie. That to me, it does sound like it's just the prefrontal cortex has got to be evolved in consciousness. I just don't see how it's not, to be honest. And even from just simply evolutionary perspective, as we go from a simple animal to a more complex animal you know we like to think that the more complex animals are the ones that are conscious as compared to let's say a worm and as far as i know but a worm doesn't have a huge prefrontal cortex i don't even know if it has a prefrontal cortex so that just makes it clear to me that it just has to be involved and this leads us perfectly into the next section of the paper actually and robert i know this is uh your field of studies, so my questions here will be directed to you. Uh, however, I just wanted to read a little part of the paper just to introduce our listeners to your theory and that is called neuropercolation theory. So, in the paper you say that mathematically the dynamics of local global effects have been described as neuropercolation theory. Neuropercolation describes cortical phase transitions in the neuropil, or layer one. These phase transitions take place between a basal state consisting of competing, local, fragmented components and a state of high coherence across the hemisphere globally when the rows of space and spatial differences cease the transition from fragmented states to global coherence appears to be ignited in areas IT, MTL, in the case of visual consciousness, something that Bernie spoke about earlier. So my question to you, Robert, is, uh, as I was reading the paper, I'm a simple-minded human being. Can you explain to me what neuropercolation theory is for the non-mathematical mind?
3: Yes. All right, okay, let's see. We have neuropercolation theory to describe the complex spatial-temporal dynamics in the brain. So before moving to neuropercolation, let, let me say a few words about right? percolation theory. And uh, so in that is in phys- physical and non-living uh, systems. Uh, so percolation is when you have a porous material and then uh, something, some liquid or some... Uh, Substance protrudes through this so these pores and then propagates in that
2: material. It's it's a coffee metaphor, right,
3: Robert? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it's actually it's a coffee metaphor because the percolation, uh, you know, in some parts of the world they call it uh, percolators, the the coffee machines, and that you put in ground uh, coffee and then uh, maybe high pressure. In Italian, espresso, very high pressure in American style. It's kind of uh, just a hot water basically flows through, but nevertheless uh, percolates through this and then uh, produces the coffee what we drink. And uh, of course, coffee is uh, very important. Actually, just let me say that even in the mathematics, uh, Paul Erdős, who is in, in graph theory, and I will mention him in a moment for the percolation. But just uh, let's say for the time being for the coffee, he was a uh, coffee drinker, and uh, he actually, uh, you know, the Erdős. When uh, we talk about the Erdős numbers, so if you wrote uh, with Erdős, then you have Erdős number one and two and three, and uh, basically this leads to this small world phenomenon. But we talk that. Uh, it's about the diameter or the longest is maybe six, seven or so. Every, or, so that is the Erdős. So Erdős used to say as a, a mathematician, and I read the uh, coffee uh, drinker that okay, mathematicians are uh, really just an automata. They drink a lot of coffee and convert into mathematical serums. So that's uh, <laughs> so that's, uh, that that and he he was very good at that and. Uh, I think they just give you a kind of a metaphor so that's what's going on so that is the the percolation when uh, something propagates now now the brain when we look about neuropercolation then uh, then we look at the brain as a big network and of course brain and networks for the last 20 years it's exploded and uh, it's very popular and uh, and very productive research now what Neuropalculation is specific about, it's really the concept of uh, phase transition and, uh, and maybe one, uh, one way to put it, that when we just discussed uh, previously about the ignition, that, okay, there is something, some ignition, uh, the the broadcast in some part of the brain and rapidly propagate. So that uh, mathematically you could say, okay, before the ignition, the different parts are kind of not very coherent and uh, have the autonomy, but at the moment of ignition, then uh, suddenly a a very rapid uh, synchronization happens. And that is what that neuropercolation can describe. Very very rigorous mathematical uh, mathematical tools. Maybe I just mentioned three points. One is that, as opposed to the standard percolation model. Uh, When uh, you just think about the coffee machine, once the water started to propagate from uh, top to bottom and produces the liquid, once it's wet, it remains wet. The standard percolation is the one-way process. In, uh, when we use this uh, in the case of brains, then we allow that, okay, even though something was wet at the moment uh, or active, later on it can become inactive. So that's one uh, important, there is some random component, but maybe one uh, very, very important thing uh, that I want to point out, and that is neuropercolation and the neuropeal about it, the role of uh, non-local connections i mean that is what uh, we observe in, in in any neural tissue right so that any neuron have several thousand connections uh, in the direct arbore uh, uh, of the somatic R, but then you have a long axon and obviously there is a reason there must be a reason there is a long axon right because uh, all the neurons have that but i want to point out that is very Very, very peculiar to the nervous system, and uh, in other physical processes, you don't have that. So, in the neuropercolation model, we describe this combination of a more regular local structure and this very sparse, but nevertheless, absolutely crucial. Uh, non-local projection, and that is what can produce uh, now in our model that uh, synchronization, desynchronization transitions very nicely what we observe as a a manifestation of also conscious uh, processing.
0: Are there any types of uh, neurons that you are able to actually differentiate? I read a paper recently that was talking about pyramidal neurons, this long-distance reach, and I wondered if there were particular neurons that you were able to discern from your research, Robert, with regards to what you just described.
3: Okay, all right. When uh, when it gets to the neuroscience, so I'm <laughs> relying more on, on Bernie's help, but I, I would think that uh, even if you look at the local, uh, region, maybe you can call it uh, a column or or some uh, micro column, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of neurons or whatever. So even within that, uh, it is very important that you have the long connections in addition to the local one. So that is one level. I think it's, uh, it's very important. We have a hierarchy of these models uh, starting from uh, something with these local populations, uh, for, and but then, and the next level, and the intracortical uh, uh, connection between brain areas—that's that's, that's another level of non-locality, and that's also very important. So I think that both are uh, important. And uh, okay, Bernie, what you may uh, you want to add? yeah. Uh-
2: This is really very profound, and and so it's not all that easy to understand right away. The empirical background of this was uh, built by Walter Freeman, the late Walter Freeman, who was a very great neuroscientist, in collaboration with Robert. And so that was a very uh, powerful uh, combination of scientific brains. And Walter uh, discovered quite beautifully that there are phenomena uh, in the uh, brain that are totally different from the way we usually think about the brain. We usually think in terms of neurons that are sort of clicky little things and they fire and they send a little signal uh, down along axons. And that is true as far as it goes. But then you have all kinds of combinations of neurons, including excitatory ones, inhibitory ones, long ones, short ones, tufty ones, straight ones, and so on. There's huge variability among neurons, which is a very important fundamental point. So Walter uh, and and Robert, uh, in terms of the analytical work, discovered that in the top layer of cortex called layer one, there is something happening that is totally different from what we had imagined prior to that, and that is an all or none process. It's a phase change process that occurs about 10 times per second, and any single phase equilibrium. If that's the correct word, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Robert. Phase equilibrium emerges for about a little less than 100 milliseconds, a tenth of a second, and then collapses. So uh, during the phase, there's self-organization in layer one of cortex. And during the collapse, there is disorganization. Disorganization is just as important as self-organization because self-organization freezes the information, and disorganization opens the system up to new information. So new perturbations of the cortex can come in during that critical 5 or 10 milliseconds between the self-organization. And I think this is what uh, Robert refers to in terms of, uh, uh, of this concept of phase changes. And the easiest metaphor uh, for a phase change is melting water or freezing water, which is actually a profoundly interesting phenomenon from a physics point of view. And the theoretical apparatus uh, for what Robert is doing emerged, at least in part, from a deeper understanding of nonlinear phase changes in water and similar media.
3: Yeah, and uh, that's yet another example. But at the beginning we discussed about the role of metaphors, right? So Bernie just told a metaphor, and somebody rightly could say that, "Okay, are you crazy? It's nothing melting in my brain." I think (laughs) I hope not, and and or freezes or condensing or whatever. Yes, that's true. But what is the phase transition? Uh, But it does take place the highly organized dynamical state, which uh, could be, you know, more uh, related, like keep the water and the steam evaporation boundary. So the water is more organized, has some degree of freedom, but when it evaporates, then you get a more uh, random uh, behavior and dynamics. So that's what we are talking about. I think it is a very important Issue that, of course, uh, graph theory and network theory are broadly used in brains, connectome and uh, all, so it is there. But what I think neuropercolation adds to this is the the very important role that the brain uh, tunes at the edge of critical behavior and that relates to some connectivity and dynamic uh, properties. If we are not looking at very carefully, it's very easy to just don't uh, notice, and then uh, then maybe the experiment is just follows some superficial features. So what we now identify that uh, the brain has developed. And that, uh, that both uh, development uh, evolutionary for millions of years, but then uh, also when a child born and then uh, first there are relatively sparse uh, connectivity and becomes more and more. And now you know at the age of maybe half a year or below one year, that's a certain critical connectivity structure reached and then uh, which allows some uh, cognitive uh, functions. So that evolution uh, puts the brain at the edge that it can be easily combated from more organized and, and less organized state. Now, maybe just one uh, one more thing to add uh, i think this long axons and non-local connectivity is really really very important because as we discussed that if it would be just the direct neighbors coupling and so on, then uh, it would would be something like a physical process, physical in the sense that, okay, melting of the ice or evaporating the water, so that why why would it oscillate? So the oscillation is really now we have a mathematical form to describe and the evidence is due to this uh, non-local propagations in a nutshell that uh, when you project to a large distance instead of just uh, need to go step by step. So the synchronization, it's very rapidly grows, but it shuts itself down in uh, in 100 milliseconds or so. So it's again could happen. And that is the mechanism that is very delicately built up in the brain. And that ultimately can get this higher cognitive function.
1: Fascinating stuff. And Thank you so much for those detailed answers, gentlemen. If you don't mind, let's move on to the next section of the paper, which is titled Conscious Events Go Beyond the Census. Bernie, what does global workspace theory or global workspace dynamics have to say about the role of the local regions?
2: In the history of neuroscience, there is a constant debate between localization and global functions. And that division, that kind of tension between two different points of view is still around today. And it's important. Most neuroscientists right now are interested in smaller and smaller and smaller because there's so much wonderful information that appears when you look at single cells or when you look at single neurotransmitters, for example, very, very important. And then there are those things that involve the brain as a whole. And the most famous ones, perhaps, are the cases of neurological damage, where, in fact, you get recovery of function, even though you're missing half your brain, which actually can occur in children, particularly, because children have a, a very great capacity for recovery of function, even with considerable damage, on, let's say, in one hemisphere. Later on in life, uh, we become less adaptive, but still the cortex functions as a whole. And that is really what we're trying to understand. What Walter and Robert demonstrated very beautifully is that you have uh, clicks. Cinematic is the word that was used. Cinematic clicks Uh, almost like an old-fashioned projector uh, projecting the movie onto a screen or an old-fashioned video camera that records one click at a time, one brief event at a time, and then you go to the next one the next one, about 100 milliseconds separate from each other. Uh, So that's in the same rough time domain. And this is actually visible now at the level of the brain if you do the right kind of analysis, and that's the work that... Walter Freeman, and Robert Kozma have worked out so beautifully.
1: Thank you for that answer, Bernie. And that leads us
2: actually to one of the
1: most meaty parts of the paper. So I'd like to discuss this in depth, if you don't mind. That specific section is titled Metacognition, using the prefrontal cortex to think about thinking. Let's start with something simple. Robert, what is metacognition?
3: Okay, so... I see that metacognition is when you can step out of the box, let's, let's put it in, uh, in that way, and you look at yourself from outside and the uh, thought process. I think that we humans have this uh, capability from time to time if we, if we, if we try. And uh, I think that is uh, very important. So we, are the, we can look at ourselves also from an eye of... A, outside there okay so why and how this is possible and uh, there are a lot of potential theories for that starting uh, with that okay cognition uh, if that cognition is a is a positive thing or a, or metacognition or a negative in a sense that do you create something when you do the cognitive processing or or just the other way around that is always there. And when you get a high understanding, you just remove the garbage or the unnecessary things. And then the truth shines out. So I yeah, I think this is the underlying question here. And uh, as always, I think that truly understand metacognition, you need to have both sides. So, and I just would, uh, would mention uh, the work of Scott he he follows that tradition uh, you know Prigojin and Haken and Kelso this instead of looking at the opposite tendencies as enemies try to merge them together. So I think that the metacognition is a manifestation for that, okay, so that's uh, that that's what I.
1: No, that was a wonderful, wonderful answer. So thank you, Robert. Bernie, this question uh, will be directed to you. So as I was reading through the paper, I noticed that you classified two types of metacognition, conscious and unconscious. Can you tell me what are the fundamental distinctions between conscious and unconscious metacognition?
2: Yeah, uh, they're fairly straightforward. And for some reason, because we have lost such important science uh, during the long period of behaviorism when you were not allowed to talk about consciousness, we kind of have to recover the obvious. Conscious metacognition is consciously thinking about conscious thinking. So if you were thinking about the Pythagorean theorem, as I'm sure most of our audience was thinking about this morning, when they were getting up out of bed then you can say, well, uh, I think the Pythagorean theorem, if you project it into 10 dimensions, implies uh, this and such. But Robert was thinking about that this morning. I was not, I assure you, thinking about that. But maybe uh, if the thought came to mind, I would have some conscious thoughts about it, like I can't possibly solve this problem in my head, go away, which is probably what, what I would have thought consciously about that. But there's also all all kinds of unconscious associations and uh, metacognitive things, emotional things. You know, shame and pride, actually both, are metacognitive emotions. Because shame says, if you're three years old, you know, and your sister calls you a poopy kid, and you sink into the earth with shame and, and remorse and terror, and you feel like you're falling apart, that's metacognition because you are conscious of something you were conscious of before, namely being called a poopy kid. So, Were you called a
0: poopy kid by your sister when you were a kid? I, I
2: think I must have been because I keep, it keeps on coming up for me. And I think it's a post-traumatic thing, you know, <laughs> it's got to be. Suppressed trauma. <laughs> yeah, suppressed trauma. But it's not just actually post-traumatic for me because the experience of shame that emerges and pride that emerges around age three is apparently epigenetically controlled by this extraordinary life development control course that we have which sometimes emerges in very predictable ways and apparently the shame and pride emotions emerge around age three or four maybe five, whatever, for children in a very predictable way. And it's devastating. You know, you think you're happy. You think you're wonderful. You celebrate yourself. You run around naked and screaming because you think you're so terrific. And then suddenly somebody, I will not mention the person, says, oh, you're just a poopy kid. And you crash, totally embarrassment, sink into the earth. So self-conscious emotions are really, really important. and and they are metacognitive, let me just say that. That leads us perfectly to my next question, actually, Bernie,
1: which is, can those two states, unconscious metacognition and conscious metacognition, exist together?
2: Yes, no question about it. The rule of thumb is that anytime you have something conscious going on, it is simply preceded, followed, surrounded by a swarm of unconscious things. And we can show that in the case of language, which has been worked out very nicely, where you have sentences, for example, that you hear and you know there's a whole bunch of processes going on that pick out the grammar and phonemes and the pronunciation and the reply that you're going to give to the person who told you that as soon as you can think of a fast answer and so on. All those things are bubbling up unconsciously long before they emerge in consciousness and of course, most of them never actually emerge. And we know that pretty much from many sources of evidence that that happens. Thank you for the answer, Bernie. And that actually
1: leads us to the final segment of the paper, which is the conclusion, and that is titled The Dynamical Connectome of Cortex. Robert, I have a question for you. Um, why does the dynamical view of the corticothalamic core give us a pause about proposing dichotomies that may not be in evidence?
3: Okay, so I think that's very nicely uh, winds back to the starting, so that uh, that the brain is uh, unified. Uh, certainly, the cortex, the unified oscillatory entity, not machine. As far as the dynamics, so may- maybe because we here we talk about really two aspects: that's the anatomical uh, connectivity and the dynamic connectivity. And maybe I think the following. Uh, may be useful uh, at least to understand what I think it's important so we we discussed uh, about that it's very important the role of uh, ignition. Uh, and then that means that the stream is interrupted, okay, cinematic or frames or whatever. So that is, uh, that is one thing. So there is some uh, temporal chunking and so on. So what is very important to realize because the brain is so tightly... Linked and uh, and connected, so this temporal chunking inevitably <coughs> relates to to spatial. There is a spatial temporal dynamic. So when uh, when you have the time um, periods, then uh, okay, you you get uh, some corresponding spatially localized amplitude patterns, and uh, afterwards, uh, and when you get large scale synchronization, basically as it goes to infinity, then the time collapses, there is a singularity and that's what is happening. So that's why uh, if that question relates to the autonomies of the operation. So you both have uh, continuous, discontinuous, and that's what you learn in this particular case, this uh, machinery of the cortical autonomic core, that uh, that you cannot just uh, look at one part and uh, the, if, if in order to understand uh, this very advanced uh, concept for uh, consciousness, you just cannot get by by, sim- by simplifying uh, to 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 extremes. So you
1: need to merge them. Bernie, is there something that you wanted to add?
2: Yeah, uh, the temptation. You know, human beings seem to like dichotomies. So we have the sky and the earth, we have male and female, we have all kinds of dichotomies which are true to a point, but not entirely true. And that bedevils us in the sciences very often because the tendency uh, at the beginning of trying to understand some new domain is to say, well, there's this part and that part, there's two of them. That's a kind of a cognitive strategy to simplify things. And people do that with the brain. So we talk about the right hemisphere, left hemisphere, and that's you know that's sort of true. And we're talking about the front and the rear, and and that's certainly sort of true. And we talk about the prefrontal cortex and whatever is posterior to the prefrontal cortex, and that is also somewhat true. But it is a gross anatomical division. It really appears beautifully, by the way. When you dissect a brain, for example, which is why it's so important, the dichotomies are real, but they don't tell the whole story. So the really important thing is to dig underneath the dichotomies and look at the traffic flow in the city. It's not just this neighborhood and that neighborhood, although that's true also, but it is the enormous amount of traffic flow. And so the connectome is a new, wonderful discovery showing essentially the street map of the cortex and and the larger brain, but mostly cortex. And then we have the traffic flow that goes over the street map. And of course, functionally, it's the traffic flow that matters because the traffic flow is the signaling that takes place between your senses and your muscular control and your thinking and all those other functions and that's really what the term dynamic very often means that things are more flexible more functional more uh less predictable really and less easily predictable than you think they are and once again metaphors are super useful
1: as in this case and what you just said brought us Pretty much a full circle to our beginning of the conversation. I have a few more questions, uh, so just bear with me, gentlemen. My next question uh, will be directed at Bernie. Can you tell me what is the most recent theory that was added to the global workspace family?
2: Sure. There's any number of interesting theoretical proposals by interesting people that use the global workspace metaphor, which the easy way to think about that is in terms of a theater where everything uh, on the stage uh, can be lit up and everything outside of the stage, either backstage or in the audience, is in the dark and is unconscious. And that turns out to be, although it's very simple and very ancient, That turns out to be a very useful way of thinking about consciousness. And then, of course, uh, I started this in the 1980s, borrowed the, the word Global Workspace from Alan Newell, and then started to develop how this may reveal things about consciousness that we had ignored before that. And that worked reasonably well. And then a bunch of other people got interested and naturally started to spin off their own ideas. And this became very, very interesting, very important. So scientific groups started to do research on the brain with that, with those concepts. And uh, mathematicians also started to uh, spin off extremely interesting and important ideas. And so the latest uh, member of the family, I haven't yet asked them uh, if they want to be members of the family, but let's say they're, they're shotgun wedding members of the family. <laughs> And uh, uh, let's assume that they're willing to be members of the family. We can adopt them. And so the most fun thing that I know right now is a wonderful paper by Gustavo Deco from a very interesting theoretical group that works on these questions. And basically, Deco and his co-authors have taken the connectome, which is the street map uh, of the cortex, And they have developed an idea that says, okay, here is a global workspace function in the connectome, which is this enormous network. And basically the very beautiful metaphor that they use is called the rich club. And the rich club is basically all the rich people in the village who know each other and they talk to each other mostly about money and about prestige and about my latest Cadillac or Tesla car. Or whatever they show off to each other, they play tennis, they they talk about things and so on. That's the rich club. And then uh, the deco group talks about a functional uh, rich club, which is very important because that's the part that does things. It's not just the connections that matter. It is the connections that you give a stock market tip to your to your good friend in exchange for a pair of golfing club, or whatever. You have a friendship, you have a trading relationship, you do each other favors, that kind of thing. Those are called fricks, F-R-I-C-S, little s, uh, functional rich clubs, and functional rich clubs in the connectome of the cortex, the street map of the cortex, are the centers of interactivity, where the trucks go to deliver things and to carry things away It's they are the traffic hubs, if you will, and that can be defined today, given the extraordinarily beautiful map of the cortex that we now have called the connectome. But this is, of course, not just a street map. This is the traffic flow uh, over the street maps, and fricks look like they're really, really interesting, and they may well function as global workspaces.
1: How fascinating! I'm. Curious to see where all that research leads us to. And speaking of leading to something, this leads us to our last uh, topic of discussion. Gentlemen, I think it's fair to say that the cortex is an extraordinarily flexible and dynamic recruitment of different regions for different tasks, as both of you have pointed out in this conversation. Therefore, I feel like an arbitrary division between prefrontal and other neuronal regions tends to be misleading, It seems like consciousness requires a much more broader and more integrative view. What do you think? Robert, let's start with you.
3: Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Uh, so, of course, that is prefrontal cortex. It exists, you cannot deny the existence and so on. But when, uh, when you are talking about complex processes, uh, in particular, the consciousness, it's just uh, limiting, uh, limiting that tension for one area or, for that matter, excluding some area, large brain area from that it is misleading and uh, it's really we should see a unity across this area so that is absolutely a necessity yes
1: bernie any final thoughts that you want to share with us
2: i think that summarizes it very well you know the the cortex i think is the leading edge of life adaptation And I believe that the cortex begins to function probably in the third trimester of gestation relatively early. And it's common these days to talk about the dreaming brain as if fetuses are dreaming. And and that is probably correct. But dreaming is a conscious state. So the cortex is working away actually during the third trimester, roughly speaking. It's different from different babies, of course. And then it begins to learn and learn and learn and learn. And the leading edge of that learning is whatever we are conscious of in any given moment. That's the surf wave that is pushing along and dealing with problems and new things. And the kind of, if you look at young babies, they're just delighted to be looking at the world. They have a little smile on their faces and their eyes are big and shiny. And during those times, they're really taking in information. That is a meaningful social expression. And the the key thing there is that function drives the workings of the brain. So that in early childhood and later childhood, for that matter, learning, curiosity, exploration, uh, realization problem solving, all those things are so highly functional. Maybe later on in life, it becomes more functional uh, to do drudgery, Uh, let's say that's boring stuff, which is hard to do. So it requires some conscious effort. But uh, learning is a much more fun thing to do. And that's what we spend maybe the first 10 years of our lives doing. That's really, really important. Function drives whatever the brain is doing and i like that for our ending
0: anyone have any other additional thoughts robert bernie or ilian to add before we say adieu to our listeners
3: Okay, one, one thing I can add, that we, we just published this paper that we discussed, but let me just say that we just came out a follow-up article just about to finish that in another Frontiers in System Neuroscience, and that uh, more uh, some uh, technical aspect, it's entitled Evolutionary Advantages of Stimulus-Driven AEG phase transition in the upper cortical layers. The same three authors, I think it will come uh, uh, very soon. So, those who are in find that paper that we discussed today interesting, then they can look into this next one for some additional details.
0: That's an excellent point, and I'll include the link to the paper that you just described, and as well as the link to this paper and the figure that we were discussing earlier in regards to ignitions and binding and broadcasting and gestalts. All of that will be included in our show notes and the website and and other places like that. And I I just wanna thank all of you so very much for your thoughtfulness and for your intelligence and focus. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, thank you.
1: And thank you everyone for letting me interview on this wonderful paper. It was a true pleasure being part of this conversation.
0: To show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on Consciousness, Science, and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com, and be sure to enter the word books. B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S. Dot .com and thank you for listening.